You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org.
And sometimes he'll bring up a theme and apply it to the different subjects, and it's the same theme over and over again, or the same conclusion. Sometimes Solomon will pick up a subject and address it and come to one conclusion, and then he will pick up that same subject a little later on and address it and come to a slightly different conclusion. Not a contradictory one, but he, he sort of just processes all of this. It's a stream of consciousness, chapters 5 to 11. And so now we come to yet another subject that Solomon addresses as part of his stream of consciousness, and this has to do with our relationship to the king. How are we to live in a world, sometimes under unreasonable tyrants or unreasonable kings? And that is the subject matter of verses 1 through 9. We're going to read the passage over again as a whole, and then we'll work our way through it. Verses 1 through 9, chapter 8, Ecclesiastes. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there's no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. That tells us how it is that we are to live and deal with the kingdom. So let's start with verse 1. Verse 1, there's some discussion with verse 1 as to whether or not verse 1 really serves as a conclusion to chapter 7, and whether the chapter division there is, is out of place, which it may not be, because chapter divisions, just like verse divisions, are not inspired. So there's something, chapter 8, verse 1 may be a conclusion to chapter 7, and dealing with that issue of wisdom, or some suggest it really introduces what is in chapter 8, and so it serves well, being at the head of the chapter like that, to be verse 1. Others suggest that 8, verse 1 is sort of a transition, and it does, it accomplishes both purposes, sort of sums up the wisdom described in chapter 7 while introducing us to chapter 8. And I think that this is a, it serves a transitional purpose. Solomon in chapter 7 has described how vain his search for the ultimate answer, ultimate wisdom was. But, but that shouldn't discourage us in seeking or pursuing wisdom. Because still Solomon would say, though I don't know all of the answers or the ultimate answers to all of life's questions, wisdom is still good. Chapter 8 verse 1. Wisdom, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? Wisdom has this benefit that it illumines a wise man and causes his stern face to shine. So it kind of introduces us to chapter 8 in that if Solomon is going to apply good biblical wisdom to this issue of obeying the king and living under authority in chapter 8. And he is concluding what he discussed in chapter 7 concerning wisdom. And so here it is, though, he's frustrated with that fruitless and 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 you know, through this search for wisdom and the ultimate answers in chapter 7, he still is going to commend wisdom to us in chapter 8, verse 1. He doesn't have the ultimate answers, but wisdom is good because, it, because he says, it illumines a man, the wise man, and causes a stern face to be. Now, what does he mean by that? The, the term is translated stern face, stern face, not stern, stern face to shine or to be. The word stern there refers to something that is hardy or mighty or like a fortress. And so you can picture somebody who has, and he's contrasting two people, the wise man and the fool here, and really he is contrasting them by means of their countenance. Compare the countenance of the wise man with the countenance of the fool. 
The countenance of the fool would have a stern face. And you can picture this. Somebody who has lived in rebellion to God's truth, and so he has experienced difficulties that life can bring when you do not follow sound wisdom. This is somebody who has lived his life and he has gone through the school of hard knocks. Life has been unkind to him. He has weathered the storm and his face shows it. You know what person I'm about? He's dour, he's sour, he's stern. Just You can't hardly get a grin out of him at any time whatsoever. He's always scowling, his, his eyebrows are scrunched together, and he's just got that look on his face like nothing ever goes right. Life has dealt him a bad hand over and over and over again, and he hates it, and he's bitter because of it. Now contrast that with the wise man. The wise man's countenance is entirely different. It's like mine right now. He's grinning, he's beaming. Why is he grinning and beaming? Because he has been made wise unto salvation. So he knows redemption, he knows forgiveness of sins, he knows a clean conscience. He also has God's perspective on all of life. So everything that he sees, because he is wise and has God's perspective, everything that he sees, all that is done under the sun, he applies biblical wisdom to that. And he understands it. Does he have all the answers? No, he has some answers. He doesn't have all of the answers. And it maybe doesn't work out perfectly for him. But in the midst of all of that, he trusts in the providence and the sovereignty of God, and he can rest in that. That God is working out a purpose and a plan. That God is accomplishing something in this. And he can view all of that from a heavenly or divine perspective. Because he has God's wisdom, he has God's perspective on everything. So his countenance is entirely different. He has joy in the midst of trials. He has happiness in, the, in, in God because of what God has done. It is a true delight and a true joy because of whom he trusts and what he knows. He knows something that the stern face does not know. Now, it's not just a, a happy countenance that is different between the wise man and the fool. The wise man knows how to navigate living under the king. And by the way, chapter 1 doesn't just say you just put on a happy face. It's not the idea. Just put on a happy face. Be like sunshine, blah, blah, blah. Put on a happy face. That's not what Saul is saying. As bad as life is, just grin and bear it. Right? Bear down and, and keep grinning. No, it's just, it comes from the outside. Because I have God's perspective. His countenance is different. Entirely different. It's the gracious man, the gracious creator. Now, wisdom also helps us to navigate life under a king. This is where verse 2 through 6 come in. Verse 2 through 6 is commands about obedience to the king. Verse 2, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil manner. He will do whatever he pleases. Now, a couple things to note here before we jump into this. Number one, this is an interesting passage because unlike the other passages on submission to authority, this comes from one who is in a position of ultimate authority. That's one of the first things that stands out. This is King Solomon talking about obeying the king. Um, when Paul in Romans 13 and Titus chapter 3 and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 talk about being submissive to authority, they are, they are saying those things and writing those things from the perspective of men who are under governing authorities and even abusive, powerful, and tyrannical governing authorities. But Solomon is not speaking as one who is under authority. Solomon is describing this and giving us this counsel from the perspective of one who is in the ultimate position of authority. He literally was a monarch, and nobody could say to him, hey, 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 what are you doing? You don't have authority to do that. He, he had ultimate authority. And so this, this counsel comes from one who was on the other side of that ledger, as it were. The second thing to notice here is that this comes from this, this there's a difference here between our culture and our context and that of Solomon. Probably nobody in this room, unless I don't know the background of some of you, probably nobody in this room knows what it is like to live under a sovereign tyrant 
that is described in this passage. Somebody with that type of ultimate authority. Now, I know that all of us like to imagine that whoever is in the White House at a time that we disagree with whatever party controls it, that they are a tyrant and that they're running roughshod over all of us. But let's be honest. Jimmy Kimmel doesn't get dragged in before a presidential tribunal and tried and executed for making fun of the President of the United States on television every night, does he? And they may get up there and whine and cry and lament, but the Hollywood elitists and the celebrities and, and the media types and all of them at their Grammys and at their Emmys and all of the other backslapping, congratulatory, self-praising, self-worshipping events that they have, when they get up there and they trash the President of the United States, None of them are put into prison for dissent. None of them are. Just this last week, somebody was returned to our country who was beaten while he was in North Korea. And he was returned in a coma, and he died. That is tyranny. So maybe we could just back the crazy train up for just a minute and realize that though the people in power are way outside of their constitutionally prescribed boundaries, we would acknowledge that. Beyond it, none of us has any idea what it would be like to live in a country where those who are in leadership actually stay within the parameters given to them in the Constitution. I understand that, but we don't live in a tyranny. I can stand up here and say these things without any fear that this afternoon I'm going to be detained at the border on my way to Canada or I'm going to be arrested in my home for saying these things. I can stand up here and be cynical or critical of an elected official and the policies or what is believed in our culture, and I'm not going to be arrested for it. That's a limited tyranny. So now the question is, given, given that Solomon here is addressing life under a king, a monarch, who has the authority of life and death over all of his citizens, he's describing that. How is it that we translate that into our cultural context and say, here's how we apply that in a constitutional republic where we rebel against the king to get the freedoms that we all recognize and enjoy today? How do we apply these principles today? We're going to have to address them. So, verse 2. Solomon says to us, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Now that phrase, the oath before God, literally means, literally translated would be the oath of God. And so the question is, what does Solomon mean? What is he referring to when he talks about the oath of God? It can mean one of two things. It might mean that Solomon is describing here the oath that governing officials would take who work on behalf of the king, or when a king was installed publicly and the people swore obedience to the king before God as part of the ceremony. This would be the oath that was taken in the presence of God before God and witnesses that I will be faithful to the king and execute the word of the king. It might be applying here to those who serve the king or serve in the king's court. And this would be referring to the oath that they took in the presence of God to be faithful to the king. Much like our public officials today swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> that was funny. They swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and do this so help them God. Right? That's what they say. So this would be kind of like that oath, the oath that they took before God. If that's what Solomon is describing, then what he is warning is this. He is saying, before you rebel against the king or disobey the king, remember, you swore in the presence of God to faithfully execute the king's word. You have, you have sworn, and, and don't take your swearing and your oath lightly, because you did this before God. Therefore, keep the command of the king. Or it may be referring to an oath that God himself took to the king. Think about that for a second. Did God ever make an oath to the king of Israel? He most certainly did. He swore to Solomon's father David certain things. God promised. We read it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 through 16. 
Here's what it says. The Lord also declares to you, that is to David, that the Lord will make a house for you. He's not talking about a building, but a lineage of a household. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And that promise is described in Psalm 89, where David writes this, my loving kindness I will keep for him forever. This is God speaking. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Psalm 89 verse 35. Once I have sworn, this is God speaking. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. God took an oath, and he swore, because he could swear by no one higher than himself. God swore by his own holiness and by his own nature, his word is true. He said, I will not lie to David. I will establish David's throne and the son that shall come from him. And that throne will be established forever. And there would come one who would rule over the house of David, and his reign would go on forever and ever and ever. Now, the, the preliminary or the initial fulfillment of that oath that God made to David was Solomon. One came from Solomon. And Solomon strayed from God's ways, and God disciplined him, just like described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But there is another fulfillment of that promise. The ultimate and end fulfillment of that was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes from the line of David. He will sit and reign over the household of David and over the throne of David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. When the angels announced the birth of Christ, it was announced in terms of kingly royalty, and in terms of that covenant that God made for David. This is the one, the angel said. God will establish his throne, and over the house of David, he will reign forever. And even at the time that that promise was given, the, the literal household of David, that there was no king who sat on that throne. But the lineage of David, in fulfillment of that promise, promise, continued all the way through until the Lord Jesus Christ. And he himself was the fulfillment of that. He came from the line of David, and he is that future and coming king. And there is a time when he will take up the kingdom of David, and he will rule and reign over that in a kingdom here in this world. And then... After the new heavens and the new earth are created, that kingdom will continue into the new heavens and the new earth, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And we will worship the son of David, the king over Israel, on a throne in the new heavens and the new earth, as part of the kingdom of David and as citizens of that kingdom forever. That's the ultimate fulfillment of that. Now, if that is what Solomon is describing, keep the commandment of the king because of God's promise to him. That is God's promise to that king. And that's how the ESV translates it. The ESV says, keep the commands of the king because of God's oath to you. If that's what Solomon is describing, then Solomon is saying this. God has promised to my father and to me and to everyone who sits on this throne for time and eternity all the way down through history. That this is God's doing. We are his kings. This is his lineage. This is his kingdom. It will never end. Do you really want to be found fighting against that kingdom? Do you really want to be found disobedient to the king who God has established and has promised the kingdom to him? You're going to overthrow that promise? Since God has sworn that to David, will you be found fighting against God? That would seem to be his warning. I think it's the second. I think he is describing God's oath to the king. And so Solomon's warning then is that 
You might be found with fighting against God if you disobey the king. Now look at verse 2 and uh, verse 3. Verse 3, I should say. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil manner. This describes what it means to keep the command of the king. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Don't be quick to just defect. Right? To find a new affection, a new flavor of the month. That, uh, we're going to go after this guy. He's my, new favorite, uh, he's my new favorite official. Don't be quick to do that. Just to change sides. Don't be hasty to do that, and don't be hasty to join in an evil matter. Such rebellion is described here as an evil matter. Don't be hasty to do that because the king does whatever he pleases. This is Solomon warns uh, against this also in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 21 and 22. He says, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Notice how those two things go together. Fear the Lord and fear the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes on both of them. Don't associate with somebody who is given to change. What is he describing? Don't be quick to leave the king. Oh, king, I am as loyal as the sun is hot, as the day is long, as the winters are cold. I am that loyal to you. And the next day the king does something, and all of a sudden, he is the worst person on the face of the planet. This happens in our political discourse today all the time, isn't it? Ah, oh, the president has done the most marvelous thing. He's fulfilled all his promises. He is the second coming of Ronald Reagan. And the very next day he does something and you say, and you say, the man has lost his mind. He's a traitor to the country. We ought to impeach him. And back and forth it goes, right? That's our political discourse. Do not associate with those who are given to change. Because they are destroyed in a moment, Solomon says. Instead, we keep the word of the king. We do not be quick to leave him. We do not associate with those who are involved in the evil matter. Now, what does that mean for us today in our context? Because that's the question, right? We don't have a king, so let's translate this into uh, 20, 21st century American. I forget how it all goes. That's where we're at. How do we translate that into our current day? What does that mean for us? Well, we have similar instructions regarding our submission to authority. You find in Romans chapter 13. Uh, some of the language, some of the principles are the same. First Peter chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3 verse 1, and there are other ones. But those are primarily the three that are addressed to, to the churches in the epistles. And here is how we would translate that. We would say that it is our duty as Christians to be submissive to all the governing authorities who are over us and to obey them. And we can, we can apply this directly. We're not quick to leave the king. We're not quick to disobey the command of the king. We're not quick to pick up arms and, and, and join in an armed rebellion against the king. We have a, a responsibility to submit to those who are over the authority over us and to obey them. But what happens when the, the commands of the king conflict with the commands of our true king? What do we do then? What is our responsibility then? And this, this happens when this conflict comes up whenever anybody who's in a position of authority gets out of their God and parameters. The, 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 God, the government is instituted with certain parameters that God has given to it. Describe in Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. There are certain parameters that government is to operate in. And then there is the authority structure of the home. And there is a, 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 a responsibility that we have with those who are authority in the home. There's an authority structure there. And then there is the authority structure that is inside the church. There are authorities and, and men who rule and have authority within the church. And what happens when any one of those spheres begins to step over and try and influence the other two spheres, you're going to have conflict. And so we have it today in our own nation where we have the government stepping in and saying, you must perform a ceremony that disagrees with your conscience. That is them stepping outside of that sphere, trying to tell us in the area of our own authority, in our church, or in society, or in our home, what we must do. And so we have now Caesar 
stepping outside of what God has designed for him into other realms, telling us as Christians certain things that God has said, thou shalt not. And further, it's starting to get to the point where Caesar is starting to say, thou shalt, when God says thou shalt not, and he's saying thou shalt not when God says thou shalt. You're not going to preach the gospel. You're not going to teach your, thing, your children that certain things are wrong. You can't have certain homeschool curriculum. You can't believe certain things. You can't say certain things publicly. This is what's going on. The Siemens can let up anytime soon. So what is a Christian's responsibility? We have to obey God rather than men. In those instances where the clear command of the state requires something of us that is in violation to the clear command of God. We don't get up in arms and get upset and start disobeying because they raised the sales tax 1%. This, those are preferences, not because of things that willy-nilly, for any reason that we jolly well please, we are to obey until the state says, you do this, and we say we cannot because God's told me not to. Or the state says, you cannot do this, and we have to say we must because God has commanded us to. And until that time, we are to seek to be the best citizens that this country has, or that any country could possibly be. And so we pray for those who are in authority over us. We submit to them as long as they, as long as they're within their sphere of authority and they're not requiring us to do something that violates a clear command of God. But once they ask us to violate that clear command of God, we must obey God rather than man. And then listen to this, because this is important. And we must do so with an eye to suffer for it, if God should so will. And this is what First Peter is all about. You obey, you submit, be prepared to suffer. Because there will come a time when doing what is right is prohibited by Caesar. And doing what is wrong is demanded by Caesar. We say no. We do so graciously, lovingly, respectfully, with a heart that wants to obey those who are authority over us. But when we cannot, then we say that we will even, if necessary, according to Peter, 1 Peter, will suffer for doing what is right. Because we will submit, and then, if want to throw you in prison, throw us in prison. That's the attitude that we ought to have. I will not perform that ceremony. You perform it or you go to jail, and throw me in jail. But those are my options. And those are my options. I will disobey, but I will be prepared to suffer for it if necessary. That is the attitude of every Christian. That's how we translate that into our context. So, though that may, and it seems as if Solomon has that potential in mind a little later on in the passage. Let's look at verse 4. This is the second reason. So, the first reason to be obedient to the king is because of God's oath to him. Um, and though we recognize, we should clarify this, God has made no oath with the office of our presidency. God has made no oath with the United States of America. Listen, every nation on the face of this planet is a temporary arrangement. The United States of America is a temporary arrangement of people. Eventually, it will all be dissolved by fire and it will be no more. Personally, I'm looking forward to that day because that means that the true king will reign in righteousness. And all of this will pass away. So we have to remember we're, we're just citizens of heaven who are living as strangers and pilgrims here on this earth. Our ultimate obedience is there. Let all the rest of it burn. Let it all burn. I hope it burns sooner rather than later because that means the king is coming and the king is here and he's establishing the kingdom in righteousness. So that's what we long for. That's what we look forward to. We have to keep that in mind. Now, so that's the first reason, the oath to the king and the oath to the king by God. 
because of that authority that he has, is the second reason. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, for he will do whatever he pleases. Verse 4, since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? In other words, in Solomon's day, and this was true of every monarchy, in Solomon's day, there was no checks and balances. There was no one who could step up and say, look, Solomon, you can't kill that guy just for breathing wrong in your presence. Right? Okay, he chews with his mouth open. You can't execute him for that. If the king decided to, chew you for, to kill you for chewing with your mouth open, that was his prerogative. He literally had the power of life and death over everybody and anything in his kingdom. He was the sovereign. The word of the king was authoritative. Whatever he wanted, he got. Whatever he said, that was law. And you see it in all the other kingdoms of the ancient world as well. He was the absolute sovereign monarch over that kingdom. And so nobody could question his authority. So that's a, that is a scary situation, isn't it, to live under a, a, a leadership like that? I agree with you. Verse 9, Solomon acknowledges that this results in people being harmed. Verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Do people suffer when tyrants rule? They do. You give any one person ultimate authority and people will die. That's the truth of it. That is why our founders divided the authority up into three branches. That is why we live in a constitutional republic and not a monarchy. It's because they recognize that the corruption of men, that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that people who exercise that kind of authority do so to the hurt and harm of others. In every country, in every time, on every continent, in all of human history, that is the case. There are no exceptions. Solomon was no exception. Go back and read through the reign of Solomon. Solomon did things that were morally reprehensible in exercising his authority and to the heart, to the hurt and harm of others. So that's the second reason he gives, because of the authority of the king. By the way, there's, there's a tie in there with Romans chapter 13. The sword, the government wields the sword, and it doesn't do so in vain. It's for the punishment of evildoers and the reward of those who do right. But Paul recognizes the government has the authority of life and death over us. They do that. They're in that position of power. They can abuse that power. And then they have a monopoly on force. And they can use it to oppress people. If that would happen. The third reason that Solomon gives is not just because the king is authoritative. But verse 5, for own personal welfare, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. But if you want to have no trouble from governing authorities, take the word of the king. It's the simple aspect of it. You, you pursue... You pursue that pattern of submission and obedience as long as you possibly can, you're not going to have any trouble. The, the, the king doesn't go after people who are obedient and submissive to him. It's when the king starts asking for things that we can't give him, that eventually he's going to come after us. But we don't go out and seek that. We don't go out and pursue that type of trouble. Because trouble comes to those who will not submit to the king. Why? Because the king is authoritative. Nobody can say to him, what are you doing? Why did you do this? Who are you to do this? Nobody has that position of authority over the king. The king can do whatever he wants. Therefore... Don't pursue trouble by being a fool regarding your disobedience. Keep the command of the king. Don't bring on yourself unnecessary trouble by just willy-nilly disobeying governing authorities for stupid and inane reasons. That's the idea. So personal welfare. Verse 6, there is a proper time and procedure for every delight. Now, Solomon mentions trouble at the end of verse 5. There's a proper time and procedure for every delight or every reason or event, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. And I think that the trouble at the end of verse 6 seems to tie in with the trouble in verse 5. Look, if you disobey a governing authority, you're going to have trouble. Okay? That's just the way it is. That's the reality. Now, as Christians, there may come a time when we have to disobey. We're going to face trouble. Okay? That's, that's the way it is in this world. We will have it. We will submit, as Peter says. We will take that, be punished for doing what is right. 
But that trouble is going to come upon him. And the wise person, this is the wise person's heart, knows the proper time and procedure for dealing with that trouble. And here's what I think Solomon is saying in verse 6. Trouble will come to those who disobey the king. When they are forced to disobey the king because that is the right and responsible thing to do. Trouble is going to come your way. Okay, you're going to suffer for doing what is right. The wise person is going to know how to navigate life in that situation and suffer in that situation. The wise person is going to know how to navigate life under a tyrant who threatens them with trouble because they are doing the right thing. And you see examples of this in the Old Testament. Like Jonathan. Jonathan knew how to wisely navigate his father's wrath toward David. And to keep David safe and to keep David alive while dealing with his father at the same time. Jonathan was a wise man. His father picked up javelins and threw them at musicians like David. For no reason at all other than that he was irritated. He was a man that was given to fits of wrath. Jonathan didn't have a man to give that. Right? Hold a feast. You read through the Old Testament. Hold a feast and have a party and say something to the king and see where he's at. Test him out. Let David know. Jonathan was a wise man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same Daniel, Jeremiah, Esther, Nathan, these were all men who knew how to wisely navigate underneath the king who was doing something wrong. Nathan confronted David with his sin. He did so with wisdom and with skill in such a way that it brought about David's repentance. So these are men who knew the proper times and procedures for living the life under the tyrant of a king. That's what verse 6 is describing. And Solomon is saying that's what wisdom gives to us. Obey the command of the king. If you disobey, there's going to be trouble. A wise person will know how to navigate that trouble when it is necessary. Now, there are some who kind of give a, a very creative interpretation to verse 6, and I'll make you aware of this. They say that when Solomon says in verse 6 that, let me read it again, there's a proper time and procedure for every delight that Solomon is describing there an armed rebellion against the king. And he's saying there's a proper time for this. Yeah, I kind of, I scratched my head with that too. I don't see that in the text. They would point to chapter 3 where Solomon says there's a time for everything under heaven. A time to live and a time to die, a time to sow and a time to reap, a time to plant, grow fruit, plant, etc. And so then they would say, well, Solomon saying here's there's a time to keep the command of the king and there's a proper time and procedure for taking up arms and rebelling against the king. I don't think that that's what Solomon is describing. I think that's an idea that we in our context would be prone to read into that passage, right? Hey, there's a time that we take up arms and disobey the king. That's not what Solomon is saying. He's just saying, when trouble comes, though your trouble is heavy, a wise man will know how to navigate and live in that kind of situation under a tyrant of the king when you are forced to disobey. But the general rule is that we obey those who are authority over us. Now verse 7. 7 and 8 kind of seem like they have nothing to do with the passage whatsoever. Verse 7, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell them when it will happen? Verse 8 has to do with death. Is this Solomon taking up a new subject, this stream of consciousness stuff, where he goes off on some other tangent? I don't think it is. I think it's related to what we're reading here, because in verse 9, he refers again to the man exercising authority over another man who was hurt. So this, these verses 7 and 8 are sandwiched between dealing and obeying with the king and dealing with the tyrant, and the verse 9, the recognition that sometimes tyrants exercise their authority to the harm of their subjects. And so verse 7 and 8 have to do something have something to do with obeying the king in this context, in this situation. Verse 7 describes the limitation of human knowledge. Verse 8 describes the limitation of human death. So here's what I think Solomon is getting at. In verse 7, he says, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Uh, Solomon has talked about this limitation of our knowledge. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what, how it's going to all unfold. What does that, that's what he's describing here, but what does that have to do with obeying the king? 
You might be tempted to think, well, if I disobey the king now, then it will work out this way, and this will be good, and this will happen, and that person will do this, and then we can do that, and then we can have this. Right? What is Solomon saying? You don't know what's going to happen, and you don't know when it's going to happen. You can't look ahead in the future and say, if we disobey now, it'll be good, or it might turn out good. It might turn out horrible. It might turn out well, then it might turn out horrible. You have no way of knowing our human limitation of not knowing the future, how and when it will unfold, is a motivation to obey the present. Right? You can't say, I will obey when I want to because this is what's going to happen. It's all the same. You have no idea what's going to happen. The limitation on your knowledge, your human limitation, makes, is, a, is, a, is an incentive to obedience. You have no idea if it's going to work out well for you or for others. A lot of people might die. Your one act of disobedience might lead to the death of millions. You never know that. Your one act of disobedience might be a great thing for you in the short term, maybe in the long term, but you can't know that. And therefore, don't do it. Verse 8 is another limitation, and that is death. And I think that every phrase here in verse 8 is describing death. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. Stop there for just a second. The word wind there is the Hebrew word that can be translated wind or spirit, depending on its context. And what is the context here? I think all of verse 8 is describing in one way or another the reality of death. The next phrase certainly does in verse 8 when he says, um, or authority over the day of death. He's describing here death. And so I think that spirit, it should be translated spirit and not wind. In other words, what Solomon is saying in the first phrase is, no man has authority to restrain, and the word means to contain or to restrict or to, to sort of imprison or latch on to something. He has no authority to do that with his spirit. When the day of death comes, no man can say, no, I'm not going to die. Right? When the time comes, no man can say, no, spirit, I won't let you leave this body. We're going to stay alive for a little while longer. Nobody has the power to constrain his own spirit and to keep it from leaving him. He can't do that. Further, no one has authority over the day of his death. That's the second phrase. No one has authority over, by the way, there's only one person who has authority over the day and time of his death, right? This kind of reminds me of John chapter 10. I laid down my life on my sheep. I have authority to lay down. I have authority to take it up again. This I received from my father. There's only one person in the history of humanity who himself was entirely sovereign over the time, the place, the manner, everything about his death. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Solomon is saying here is no man has the ability to constrain the spirit. It's time to go. No man has authority over the day of his own death. That day is appointed for you. It is appointed for me. And it's not we who appoint that for ourselves. It is God who has appointed that for us. And no man can alter that day. No man can say, no, I'll live another hour or I'll live another day. That is all under the hand of the sovereign God who has appointed that for us. And no one has that authority. I want you to notice the, the, dis the distinction here, the difference here between verse 8 and the sound of it and the passages up in verse 3 and 4 that describe the authority of the king. Notice the contrast. The king has ultimate and complete authority over everything in his kingdom. But no man, king included, can restrain his spirit or can alter the day of his death. Solomon had authority over everything in the land of Israel, except one thing. What was it? When he died. He had authority over everything else. But when it comes to the time of his death, he's no longer a king. He's just a mere mortal like you and I. The third phrase also has to do with death, verse 8. There is no discharge in the time of war. What's he describing there? You go out to war, you go out to battle. Once the battle is engaged, there's no getting out of the army. Before that time, people in Israel could leave for whatever reason, go home. They were too scared. They had issues to attend to. 
Uh, their, their loyalties were divided, they could leave the army, but once the battle is on, that first shot is fired, once that happens, then it's game on and there's no discharge at the time of war. How does that apply to death? I think what Solomon's describing here is that all of us are engaged in this march toward death and all of us fall before it. But day after day, single file, one by one, we march in that battle and there is no discharge from this. There's no getting out of this life alive. There's no escaping death. Nobody can. The king is not going to be discharged from this battle. He, like all the rest of us, are going to, is going to fall. The fourth phrase has to do with death, verse 8. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. What evil is Solomon talking about? I think the same evil that he references in verse 9. A man exercising authority over another man to his hurt. That's the evil. The king, no matter how tyrannical he is, no matter how oppressive he is, cannot, by all of his machinations and machinations, do anything to change the day of his death or to alter the fact that he himself is going to die. No amount of evil that the king does can overcome that reality that he, like the rest of us, is going to die. Death is just as certain for the peasant as it is for the king. And it's just as certain for the king as it is for the peasant. And there's no getting out of it. There's no discharge in the time of war. And all of the evil that the king is going to do is not going to change that fact. So I think there's some comfort for us here as Christians. Let me give you two points. This will close. Here's the first one. First comforting thing. Every tyrant is temporary. You have to remember that. Pol Pot, Lenin, Stalin, Marx, Mao Zedong, Castro, Saddam Hussein, all of them are temporary. All of them have died. All of the ones that are living will die. All of the ones that have died are rotting in their tombs. They're decaying, and they themselves are suffering exactly the just desserts of all that they did on this planet. Every tyrant is temporary. And I think that that is the intended comfort to us. We find ourselves under an oppressive regime or under an oppressive tyrant, we as Christians have to keep in mind, his life is temporary. This will not go on forever. He is going to die just like the rest of us will die. He's not exempt from death. So he will perish. The second comfort is I think the realization that though we may suffer under an unjust or tyrannical regime at some point in time, and by the way, people, it is, it is the reality for people all over the country that they suffer under unjust regime, regimes, Christians. What we enjoy here is a brief reprieve from the overall flow of human history. This is a bright light of grace in, in 6,000 years of oppressive human history. And we need to recognize that. Christians all over the world don't enjoy this. And so the second thing of comfort is to recognize that we as Christians wait for that perfect king who will come. And we recognize that we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of this world. This earth is not our home. It will all be burned up. We can be encouraged by that. We can know that eventually that perfect king is going to come, and to him shall be the obedience of all the nations. They will all bow down, and it will be the joy and the delight and the glory of everyone who belongs to him to worship that perfect, sovereign, benevolent, and kind monarch who will exercise ultimate authority, and he will not do so to anyone's harm or hurt. He'll do so for the good of his people and the glory of his great name. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are so merciful to us to give us such hope in the midst of suffering. And we recognize that you have been good to the people of this nation by granting us such liberty, such prosperity, such freedom to proclaim the gospel and to enjoy the benefits of it and to openly worship you. We are grateful for these freedoms. And we pray that you give us wisdom to navigate in this world as we submit to those who are authority over us. 
recognizing that we are limited by our own human understanding. We're also limited by the fact that we will not live forever. So give us, give us grace to fix our hope upon heaven and the things that are there, that we might look forward to that reward, and we might look forward to that joy of bowing before the King of Glory. That is our heart's cry, and we long for that and anticipate that day with great expectation. May you hasten that day and be glorified in the lives of the obedience of your people. Until then, we ask for Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.